following is a pre-recorded program. You are entering the Freedom Hut. Congress passes a massive COVID pork extravaganza. Media panic over super COVID in America. Woke insanity takes over a fancy school in NYC. And Merry Christmas, everybody. This, this is the Buck Sexton Show, where the mission, or mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. One Make no mistake. America. Great. You're a great American again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. He's a great guy. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show. Thank you so much for being here. And it is, for me, my final show of the year because I'll be on vacation starting tomorrow. The Godfather, Mike Opelka, will be in for me. And I just want to say a few things before I dive into the news. Uh, First off, if you're listening to this on any radio station anywhere across the country, I hope you know that at this point you can always listen on demand. If you miss on a station, the show, you can listen to the podcast on demand. And we are on all the platforms, iHeart app, Spotify, iTunes. Please, my birthday is December 28th. I'll be 39 years old. And all I want for my birthday is all of you hearing this anywhere to subscribe. And if you're already a subscriber, tell one friend, just one person about this show and say, hey, it's free. Subscribe to the Buck Sexton Show on Apple Podcasts, on uh, Spotify, Pandora. We're now on Pandora. And also make sure you're checking out BuckSexton.com because you can listen to the show there as well as we have stories posted throughout the day. So that's my first my first order of business. My second order of business right now is to just say that we've had a great year on the show. It has been a bad year for America and the world. I understand that. But I did want to say for a moment, thank you so much to all of you who have helped us have our biggest ever year of growth, um, the most listening, the most podcast downloads, and we just keep doing better and better. And we're essentially at a point now where this show gets placed into a market and it does well. This show gets picked up by a station. The numbers go up. It's been doing this now for years, but now the momentum and the and the reality of that is undeniable. And that's because of all of you. And I I do think that this show deserves that listening. Uh, Producer Mark and me and the whole Freedom Hut team, we do everything we can to make it the most worthwhile experience possible. So if you'll excuse me, it's a little bit of a a little bit of pre-birthday, pre-Christmas self-indulgence here. But I just wanted to tell you all uh, thank you so much because we have had a great year and it is because of all of you who listened to us and who trusted us in what is a very challenging environment a very difficult year no question about it i think the show has been right i think we've been more often than not uh, on the forefront of the battles for for the truth whether it's on the covid lockdowns or on what's what's happened with this election on blm and the movement over the summer you remember i was telling you all these concession moves all the negotiations republicans are talking about the pulling down of statues that this was essentially a spasm of the left it was an outgrowth of rage and and power a power grab on their part it wasn't a good faith effort to try and rehabilitate or renegotiate or anything like that. They weren't seeking compromise. Uh, They weren't looking for converts. They were hunting heretics. And that's 
just those are just a few of the areas where I think I'm, I'm very proud of what we've done on the show this year. And I, I don't do as much self-promotion as I know a lot of other hosts do. Occasionally, I'll, I'll hear a clip somewhere or something and people talk about um, how, how great they are. I am honored and humbled to have what I think is the most discerning and most insightful and loyal audience anyone could ever have doing what I do. And I see this all the time from the messages you send. And I also appreciate that you stick with me and with this show through very difficult times, which has certainly been the case uh, this year. So any of you who feel like sending me a happy birthday on December 28th, be much appreciated. But I will be on the beach with Snow Princess doing my thing. Now let's jump into the latest. Congress passed a massive pork-laden bill, trillions of dollars of spending, $900 billion for COVID relief. And there's a lot of stuff here that's getting conflated. So I want to make this clear. Yes, it is true that the stuff that everyone's pointing out that's contained in the spending bill is not technically part of the COVID bailout portion of this. But it's also true that they waited to do all of this together And that just makes it more difficult for us to hold anyone accountable. That just makes it more difficult for us to see who was responsible for what in this whole process. And it shows us that the the government, there's still a, a real contempt that the ruling class and the elites have for the American people, because at this moment of real panic and real suffering and pain across the country, which is still going on, You had members of Congress, powerful elected officials who took this as an opportunity to engage in all kinds of of buy offs and payoffs for favored constituencies. And they did this all together for a reason. That's my point. I understand there's a difference between the $900 billion for COVID relief specifically and the $10 million contained in the overall spending bill which is the federal federal government outlays, right? The omnibus, the overall spending bill that had $10 million for gender programs in Pakistan. I, I know that these aren't technically the same bill or, or the same effort within the legislative process, but understand this. Uh, they did this together so that they were, they were like pulling off all the Band-Aids at once, if you get my drift. They did this so that it was, we would all just be disgusted at the same time and then we would we wouldn't really know who to blame you know for Pelosi this is a good thing because she delayed necessary aid billions and billions of dollars of aid to people who are in a really bad place right now you know I've just seen some of the early reports on drug overdose deaths for this year and it's looking like it's going to be well over 80,000. That's not an official number yet, but that's the, what the early count is. We're looking at the highest year ever of overdoses in the United States. And remember, we had an overdose crisis for the last 10 years. And the number's been going up and up and up. So we're at the worst ever year for drug overdoses in the United States in our history right now. Over 80,000 people dead. And you can't tell me that there's not a, a substantial percentage of those who have died who are not uh, doing what they think is a kind of self-medication of their despair, using opioids and other substances because of all the emotional, psychological, and physical pain that they are feeling. And they're feeling it in part because of the separation from other human beings, because of the loss of jobs, because of the destruction of businesses. 
yes, I understand that this is a a brutal time for the country. And I understand that there is no perfect answer here. But let's remember that there are some who are much more responsible for extending the misery, for making this even worse than others. And Nancy Pelosi is very high on that list, as are many other Democrats. And, and yes, there's a lot of stuff that's contained in in the bill that overall, even if we weren't talking about covid stimulus funds or you know covid relief funds, whatever you want to call it, even if that weren't an issue, Congress is passing bills now that that regulate performance enhancing drugs for horses. And Congress is is passing bills to send money to a whole array of countries. Uh, we're giving money to Sudan. Uh, we're, we're giving uh, a large sum of money to, to Israel. We're, we're giving money to a lot of foreign countries. Why are we doing any foreign aid this year? That seems to be a very fair question. I mean, any foreign aid. And I don't want to pick on any individual country. I, I don't understand why we're doing any foreign aid at all. The taxpayers are having their money sent overseas for what? Do you really think that we should be worried about democracy promotion in Pakistan right now? And let's be honest about this. How much democracy promotion do you think you're really getting in a country of 170 or so million people by spending $10 million, which is what the outlay was? Yeah, that's, that's a lot of democracy promotion you're putting on a very small amount of dollar bills, aren't you? And the list just goes on and on for these things that people are seeing. And, and, and one of my frustrations is that, yeah, everyone, everyone trashes congress when this happens right people say oh my gosh how could the how could congress be so um inept and so dumb but they do this right before the christmas break they know exactly what they're doing they do it right before people go off on holiday who's even going to remember this in the new year who's going to really spend any time at all thinking about this once we get into january no it'll be we'll have other fights so they understand the game and they're, they're playing it like pros. We think that they're there to put the interest of the American people first and make responsible decisions to help as many of us as, I, as, we, as they can uh, while respecting and defending the Constitution. That, that's really it. It's a pretty straightforward idea. They think they're there to sign their name to things that spend the public money in such a way that they will be able to get reelected. That's the primary goal of, of 95% of the members of Congress on, in both parties. This is bipartisan now, folks. This is both teams. And the government has, has closed down much of the economy, not all of it, but a lot of the economy. People are facing expulsion from their homes. We have a wave of, of evictions that, that is coming. And even if they delay it, eventually it's going to happen. There's going to be a reset. People are going to be kicked out of their houses in large numbers, the government sends everyone, what, $600? That's what we've got in here in the direct payment. If you fall under certain categories, $300 of additional unemployment. In, in the meantime, they send, uh, let me see here, and, and hat tip Technofog for this on Twitter, $135 million to Burma, $85 million to Cambodia, $1.4 billion for the Asia Reassurance Initiative Act, and $130 million to Nepal. Yeah, that's right. I, I lose sleep at night worried about whether they're going to fund the Asia Reassurance Initiative Act. That one does get me. That, that gets me really concerned. I'm, I'm very worried about that one. What would happen without that? And we all get angry about it, and then we don't really do anything about it. 
we were supposed to have the swamp drained. And I think for a lot of us, this comes, this is tough. And I know we're going to the holidays and I, I, I just want to say that there's a lot that I'm optimistic about for this country and, and the future. And honestly, as long as I get to do this with all of you, as long as I can share the truth from the perspective of somebody who really loves this country and just loves Americans, but I actually love the American people. I, I have a, a fondness, e, even for all the libs, I have a, an innate and deeply ingrained uh, connection to my fellow Americans. I really feel that. And maybe maybe that sounds a little corny, but we're going to the holidays. I'm just going to tell you how I feel. And I think we'll get through all this, but we have some battles ahead and we have some housekeeping to do. And we have to we have to get ready for a lot of policy that's going to be, shall we say, suboptimal. That's coming our way. Uh, but we also have to be very honest about what has gone on over the last four years and maybe it was an impossible mission to say that the swamp would be drained. But I, I'm here to tell you, and I think you already know this, but we should all understand the mission continues. I think Trump understands that, too. The mission continues. The swamp has absolutely not been drained. Politics in D.C. has not changed forever. In fact, what we see here is a giant empire strikes back moment from Congress. That's what this is and that's why i want us all to be very focused on what we need to do in the future focused on this on these georgia runoffs for the senate and focused on the battles that lay ahead because we still have a lot to do friends and we we need to be happy warriors we need to be energized and engaged and yes rest relax recuperate over this holiday as much as you can especially for those of you that get some time off god bless and i know it's it's a stressful time because of covid but we fight because it's the right thing to do and that's what we will continue to do together and that is the mission the mantra of this show that's why i always say at the end shields high i remind myself of that in life all the time i can't tell all of you to hold your shield high if i won't do the same it's not, not easy these days, not easy to stand on constitutional principle, not easy to feel like you're a person who the consensus, the digital elite consensus of social media, of Hollywood, of the academy, of law schools, of the legal profession largely, of the courts, is standing against you. But we continue in this battle because it's the right thing to do, because ultimately it's for the future of the greatest country the world has ever known, which even on its worst days, even as swampy as it is, America makes the world a better place every day it exists. And you and I both know that, and we're both parts of that. So don't forget that. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. And uh, it is not overblown to say that Donald Trump is an authoritarian who does not believe in democracy. It goes beyond Trump. I mean, we have got to ask ourselves uh, why 70, whatever the number, 73 million, I think, uh, voted for him. And, and we've got to reach out to those people. I think that there is, and I, and I think that to some degree, uh, Dean, uh, I'm sure a lot of my Democratic colleagues do not agree with me, but this is a reflection of the Democratic Party, because I think if you talk to many of those uh you know, people, working class people who voted for Trump, they'll say, look, of course we know he's a liar. We know he's full of shit. Uh, but at least, you know, he does this, he does that, something the Democrats don't do. So we have got to figure out a way to bring our people together, black and white and Latino, Native American, Asian American, working class people, and say, you know what? You need a government that represents 
our interests, not one that divides us up by the color of our skin or where we were born or our sexual orientation or whatever. Bernie Sanders, I miss him. But, you know, he was sort of mellow, Bernie there. I've never heard him sort of not yelling. Notice when he gives a speech, it's up here, but when he's on the phone, it's kind of down around here. They're not going to do any outreach. I, I just had to play that for you just to remind everyone of the delusions here of the Democrat Party. There's not going to be any outreach to people who voted for Trump. Not really. No, no, no. They, they didn't do any of it in the election process. Why would they do any election outreach going forward? I mean, why would they do any trying to bring us over to their side? What was the big idea? Think about this. What was the big idea the Democrats had that Biden stood for that really convinced people that this was the way to go? What, what was the thing that they had? That was supposed to make us all say, you know what? They've got a really good idea here. Let's go with that. It was Trump is basically worse than Hitler. And Joe Biden is a guy who's a Democrat. That was the whole campaign. There there was no idea this was run on other than Joe Biden isn't Trump. And the media tried to convince as much of the country as possible that despite his ability to run the country pretty darn well for three years, The COVID pandemic was entirely his fault. And so if you want COVID to stop, you have to vote against Trump. That was their whole play. And it was craven, but it has gotten us to this place we are currently in. And so beyond beyond that, I would just say, you know, Bernie Sanders, I hope we hear more from Bernie Sanders in the the months and years ahead, just because I love doing the voice under Bernie Sanders wants to wish everybody a happy Workers' Day, not a holiday. It's not about being holy. It's about the workers. It's about getting you as much cash as you can from your neighbor. It's not a gift. It's redistribution of wealth. That's what Bernie wants to do. He wants to redistribute that wealth. That's his version. That's his version of Christmas and Hanukkah gifts for all of you. Taking from your neighbor by the force of government and giving it to other people. Uh, I guess that's the Democrat version of happy holidays. Um, but there will be no outreach to Trump voters. There will be intended uh, purges of them, though, and get ready for that. They're going to want to make life as uncomfortable as possible for former Trump administration officials. Certainly the media will do it. So will many corporations. So let's remember we have to stand beside those who fight with us. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Buck Sexton is back. It is a good bipartisan bill. Uh, It does, as different from bills that had been proposed on the Senate side by the Republican leader, it does things that his bill never did. And that is it addresses the food needs of the American people. Maybe 15 million children are food insecure in our country and adults as well. The only thing that can save us is to open the economy. If we give these tin pot dictators, these governors more money, they're less likely to open the economy. The answer is not printing up and distributing free money. It's opening the economy. We're not even debating the real answer to this. We're like, just print up the money and shovel it out the door. The deficit be damned. There you have, uh, there you have the dueling philosophies of the left and, well, some on the right. Uh, You have the dueling philosophies from Nancy Pelosi and Senator Rand Paul here. Pelosi says it's a good bill, which should terrify you, right? I mean, if Nancy Pelosi is happy 
you should be very unhappy. That's a good rule of thumb about anything that the Congress is doing. You should be unhappy and, and certainly worried uh, if Nancy Pelosi is telling you that some massive multi-trillion dollar spending bill meets all the needs that she feels that uh, are out there. And remember that this is a lot less than what she was demanding. What she was demanding was flatly ridiculous. I mean, she's accepting this now because, yeah, this is too much money. It's too much spending. We're $27 trillion, $27 trillion in debt. But she wanted, what was it, almost $3 trillion of new spending on top of all the trillions of spending that's already happened? I mean, that was just crazy town, right? Crazy town. But that's where Nancy is the mayor of crazy town, as well as being a member of Congress. I don't know if you knew that. Rand Paul's right. These bailouts, this continued, and I'm not talking about for individuals. That is deserved. But what we're seeing for municipalities and what we're seeing for multinational corporations, I mean, the money that's getting sloshed around in this thing, we should have, instead of all this, we should have a system that puts a priority on getting us reopened as quickly as possible. What we should have here are incentives in place for companies and for states to take reasonable measures to reopen ASAP. Because instead, what you have here is America heading into this this long period of COVID winter. And there's no incentive for governors, for mayors who aren't already trying to hold the line and stay open. There's no incentive for them to open back up and just take the risk, the political risk and otherwise of having a spike in cases when they reopen, even though, as we see, the massive spikes that have occurred right now. And there are pieces coming out from reputable places. I mean, the the Federation of American Scientists, for example, put out a study and it's from South Korea and it involves all it's peer reviewed and involves all the contact tracing information from South Korea, which does a very good job of this. And it showed that there are people in an apartment building who live on different floors who got infected and there's and they're all in the same air duct line. So the, the conclusion is that there seems to be a possibility that COVID can freely circulate in the air through air ducts in a building. So you may not even be in the same apartment as someone, but you could still be infected depending on the airflow, which then raises a lot of questions about that piece of cloth that says Biden-Harris 2020 over your mouth and how much protection that really gives you. But we're not yet at the point where we've broken through the censorship on this. So we're not really allowed to speak openly and honestly. I mean, I can hear on the show, but... I have to be very careful on social media platforms. I have to be very careful about what I eat. I'm not talking about just sharing data and information. I mean, anyone who looks at graphs right now of mask mandates, lockdowns, and cases and hospitalizations in states like California has to just result to gibberish and fantasy land explanations for why this is a really effective policy. The only thing they can say is the unfalsifiable, oh, it would be so much worse if we didn't do this. And I would just ask you to take a look at a graphic of California. Take a look at it and tell me if you think that it really could be that much worse than it currently is in California. I mean, how much more spread would really is the whole state going to get infected in three days if it weren't for mass game? I mean, really, it's absurd. But that's what they're saying. And if you challenge them, they throw a bunch of credentials that other people have in your face. And those people with those credentials have often been very, very wrong. And they tell you, shut up and you're a flat earther. End of story. That's where we are. I'm telling you, so much of this is driven by ego because there are so many people who believe they're really, really smart. 
even though they don't know anything about science or biology or anything else, but they're really, really smart. They watch CNN. You know, they read the New York Times and they've believed all this stuff all along. And no one wants to be the person that realizes that they've been in a cult. No one wants to feel like they were able to be brainwashed or swindled or bamboozled. So there's a tremendous amount of psychological resistance to accepting that people were wrong in this. And we're just going to keep looking and keep sharing the information, keep sharing the data, because their wrongness has cost for all the rest of us. Their wrongness results in lockdowns that continue on in mask policies that are just a constant psychological and emotional and physical agitation. Uh, it, re- it results in dividing us, making us think that there's some politicized aspect to the covid virus, which is absurd. But they've made it very political. It never should have been political, but it has become such. Remember when they were telling us that don't make the vi- don't make the mask political, just wear it. And now it's we have cases because of those non mask wearing Trump voters. Right. They just totally abandoned that whole. Oh, let's not make it political. Just do what I say. And then when what they say doesn't work, what do they do? They blame us for not doing what they say, even though by all the data, people are limiting their travel, limiting their contacts and wearing masks all across the country. Ninety percent compliance with mandates is the best estimate out there. But don't worry, Fauci's on TV. I I got the vaccine. Don't worry. I'll be running your life. I'll be in charge of you. Dr. Fauci will be in charge of you for another 20 years at least. I'm going to be sitting around here telling you, no, you know, yes, I understand the vaccine has a 99% survival rate, but, you know, 99.99 actually if you're under 65. But uh, beyond that, I just, you know, I think you should cancel all fun things in life and give it a few more years because there's still virus. There could be mutations. Yeah, that's right. You think you think they're going to let this go? You, you think they're going to give us back our freedom? No, you're going to have to take it back. You're going to have to hold people accountable. There are going to have to be lawsuits. There's going to have to be noncompliance. That's the only way this stops. There are going to be fistfights. There are going to be people that lose their minds when you walk past them outside without a mask on, even though they're the lunatics. They're wrong. People that look at you outside in the fresh air, walking past them, and you don't have a mask, and they think you're putting them in jeopardy, they are wrong. They are, they are just afraid, and they are easily brainwashed. But they are incorrect. You are not. Just remember that. Because it's going to get ugly. They're not going to go down. This tyranny will not go down without a fight. It is among our biggest challenges in 2020. And, I'm sorry, 2021. See, I can't even remember the year now. And the COVID lockdown tyranny. This is, because if we don't, yeah, eventually, maybe in 12 months, they'll start to really ease up. But no, they won't next winter. It'll be after that. Next spring, not this spring, next spring, you'll start to feel like you can actually live your life again. Do you want to sacrifice that because of incompetent fools like Fauci and company? You want to make that? I don't want to make that sacrifice. I don't want to see what this country is like economically if we still pile trillions of dollars of just debt, future promises to pay on top of the debt we already have. That's that's just catastrophic in waiting. That's what we know is happening right now. So we, we need to understand that they're not going to give this up. They're not going to let this go. And it's going to be incumbent upon all of us. It's really at the state and local level because at the federal level, the tyranny is, is going to have all kinds of backup. So it's going to be at the state and local level. We have to push back 
And look, I just hope they make enough room for everybody in Texas and Florida who's fleeing these stupid blue states that are destroying themselves. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. If we are on a on a glide path because of climate change to our annihilation as a species. And there are people that benefit from the belief who don't really share it, but who will propagate it anyway. And there are people who are truly that brainwashed and delusional that they think that it is a, an existential threat. They actually think that. They worry about this. I mean, there are people that write articles now about how they don't want to have children because they don't want to add to climate change. There are people that write articles about how they, they lose sleep at night because they're so worried about the rise of the seas from all the, you know, they watch too much CNN and BBC and this other crap by people who just aren't able to think for themselves. You know, I often refer to people as, as stupid in the media, and I'll, I'll say this, and part of that is out of frustration. The things they say are dumb, but I know that it's not that they're actually, well, in some cases, I mean, there are people who are just utter morons. There really are. They're people who have low IQs, who are not very bright, not very intelligent, and some of them have enormous media platforms. So I, I, I do want to establish that that is a real thing. But there are a lot of other people in the media who, you know, went to fancy schools and probably got pretty decent SATs. You know, not that many in journalism, but there are some that fall into that category. But really what they have is cowardice more than stupidity. They always want to be considered smart. They always want to be considered on the right side of these issues so they follow the herd. They stay within the crowd. And that is the, the worst possible mentality for someone who considers himself to be a truth teller. And journalists do think that about themselves. They aren't. It's the worst possible mentality to have. It's why journalism in this country has become such a preposterous joke. And it is. It is a joke. An unfunny one, but a joke nonetheless. But I, I want to be very clear. This is going to be a, a major challenge for us going forward in the year 2021, the Democrats are going to be pushing amnesty and, and immigration, something you're going to be hearing about a lot on this show, because if we ultimately lose the battle on immigration, we lose on everything. We lose on everything because they're changing the voters. They're going to have voters who are dependent on the Democrat Party's largesse at the expense of taxpayers and citizens. And we're never going to win another. If they have if they have amnesty and mail in balloting, folks, we're done. We're, the Republican Party is not going to win another national election for a very, very long time. Um, so we're going to be focused in on on immigration as an issue. But you're also going to see the continuation of this this transfer of the urgency and the demand for your obedience around COVID-19 is going to transition to climate change. And I know for you and me, that's crazy. That's just crazy. It is but remember, there are people who do believe it. Unfortunately, the Democrat masses from everything in their pop culture to their friend groups and social media always reinforcing this absurd belief. Our right, climate change is not an existential threat to humanity, any more so than an asteroid uh, hitting the planet is an existential threat. And yes, it could happen. Are you losing sleep about it? Are you not having children because an asteroid may hit us in a thousand years? Who knows, right? This is, this is really a, a religion replacement. As I've always said, climate change is a religious belief for people who think they are too smart for religion. And then there are the other people who will benefit enormously from this. All the solar, you know, the solar panel companies that need government subsidies and, and maybe even bailouts. You know, there are all the different you know, alternative energy 
uh, industries and carbon offsets and all this stuff, all these little pig snouts at the trough of the government's goodies that come from this alternative energy sector and everything else. That's going to be a huge component of this as well. So, my friends, we all need to be very aware of this. I know that it seems so crazy that it can't be real. They can't really want to do this, but I am here to tell you they do want to do this, and and they will, and we're going to have to fight them on it. And they're going to think that you're the one who's loony. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's Harsanya time, everybody. Our friend David Harsanya in the mix from NationalReview.com, where he is a senior writer. Mr. David, final live show for me for the year. Thank you so much for joining us and all your various appearances here. We appreciate it. It is a pleasure each and every time, Buck. So tell me this. Fauci is out there. And for the first time, one of, one of my, my points that I make about Fauci, because I, I think you have a very interesting take on this, is that whenever there's reason, he's very quick to say, well, even if there's like a one in a thousand chance of that thing happening, let's let's take the most cautious and I would say overcautious and and even authoritarian approach possible. And then when there's good news, you know, like, for example, about schools, I don't know why isn't Fauci on TV with a public service announcement saying open the schools. Schools should be there's no debate about this anymore. Open. The, right. It, it's always the negative stuff that he's very clear on. But the positive we don't get to hear from him. Why is not he telling people get rid of outdoor ma- outdoor masking to this day? Be, completely baffles me. There are mandates for outdoor masks in some states. There is zero science to back this up. There's no study that says it's a risk. It's crazy. OK, he won't say that. But finally, he said, we've gone too far. What did he say with David? Well, when, when people brought up that we might need a, uh, a temporary travel ban from uh, Britain because they have some kind of super spreader, you know, virus, I think it spread 70% faster or something like that uh, than the, the strain we have, he called it draconian. And I am just taken aback by the way that a lot of these elites and expert class people talk about the world. Um, you know, it's not draconian to tell your, you, you know, to tell families they can't visit each other on Thanksgiving and Christmas. It's not draconian to shut down the schools for a year. It's not draconian to destroy entire industries like the restaurant industry in New York, even though I think studies show that one percent, they're one percent of the of the spread. It's not draconian to tell people they can't go to church, uh, despite uh, you know the Constitution clearly <laughs> clearly laying out that that is a right of people to do. So. You know, this is the problem when you talk about science. Now, of course, when most of the time when people talk about science, they're just preening on about, you know, things that have nothing to do with science. But the thing is that it's not just about science. It's about a lot of other things in society. And, and, and having the science lead us all the time, it creates the situation you just mentioned, where we have uh, public health officials who only care about the science. They don't care about the social interaction meaning, you know, the, the emotional importance of that kind of thing for society, or they don't care about the rights of people. And then you have them saying that's draconian to, 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 to shut down airline flights. It, I don't even understand. It's just arbitrary. And it's not doesn't just doesn't sound very scientific to me. What do you think is going to happen uh, when we, we with the incoming administration here? I, I can't really decide in the early stages. I mean, I'm going to have to see how this plays out. But but I was someone who, and I think I've said this to you, we've talked about this uh, on earlier shows. I knew starting around August, oh, no, they're not. It, the, the plan here is not 
to have the great Biden reopening if he wins. The plan is going to be to continue the, the lockdowns, the control and maintain power in certain hands long after any reasonable person could think that that was something that should happen. And we are seeing now, I believe that is at least the the early stage plan. But do, do you think that they're going to just make a lot of noise about how they're doing things like the Biden administration separately from the states and people like Cuomo and Newsom are doing things so differently now when they're really not? Or do you think they're actually going to take concrete actions that are supposed to be making a difference here in the course of the pandemic? You know, you see what I mean about the distinction? There's literally nothing they can do that they couldn't do before, right? I mean, it's not like Donald Trump stopped them from doing anything. Yesterday, Nancy Pelosi was, on, you know, talking about this ridiculous bill that they just passed, and then she she claimed that, you know, Republicans are purposely spreading it, basically, uh, that they don't believe in science, and then she jumps over to how, you know, suddenly we have this vaccine out of nowhere, right? So uh, Republicans are anti-science, but yet also pro-vaccine, but also anti-vaccine. It doesn't make any sense because, in my view at least, there is no real way uh, that they, or they have no real plan, and there is no real way to fight in a, a respiratory you know, a respiratory disease like this, right? No one's doing better than us. Germany's not doing better. England's not doing better. I mean, essentially, we're all doing the same. So every little power they take is a new, uh, 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 a new standard that they've set to take power in the future. And that's why it upsets me so much when I talk about this stuff. I just, you know, I don't know if that answers the question, but I just feel like every time they take power, there's really not a huge amount of scientific basis for it. It ignores the Constitution many, many times. And it's just a new power that they arbitrarily take that they're never going to give back. And that, I think, is very dangerous for the country. And that, I think, is going to be, listen, it's a tragedy. We've lost a lot of lives. I'm not trying to diminish that. But you also have to think long term about the sort of governance we're going to have moving forward. Biden will completely never complain once about anyone taking too much power, I assume, right, in some state. So uh, that might be the only difference. Speaking of David Harsani, he's a senior writer at National Review. And, yeah, David, my my expectation is that what you're going to what you're going to see is like, this is like the 100 days of masking. I mean, I look around and everyone who's saying this out loud as though it's an intelligent point. I just want to yell. We already have by, oh, by there's no data set that disagrees with this that I've seen anywhere. At least 80, more like 90 percent mass compliance across the whole country. So in states that require masking, people are worried because you can't go to the store. You can't go shop. I mean, you can't do it. Right. So if they require them, you're already wearing them. So their game change maneuver is to essentially put out. I mean, this is really what I was leading to with the initial question. And you clearly see it the same way is that it's effectively going to be a PR campaign. Biden comes in and it's the same stuff that we see, except there'll be no pushback on the on the tyrannical side. I think the DOJ will be unwilling to be. And I I have criticism of the DOJ up to this point. I think they've just said, look, we don't want to get in the middle of the pandemic fight. Like we don't want to be suing states when they're trying when they say they're trying to save lives. But, yeah, they'll make it easier for for the autocracy about covid to continue. But I don't think they're going to do really all that much differently at the federal level. I mean, federal buildings are going to require masks. Federal people are already wearing masks. I, I have friends who work in these agencies. They're, they're, they're wearing masks. That's already happening. Yeah, it's a, it's a complete fantasy, purposely. You know, it's a complete political fantasy or partisan fantasy to say that, some, that, that we're not wearing masks. When every, as you mentioned, every study shows that most people wear masks. You can't go into stores where this spreads, where there are masks. There aren't churches that are like, most churches, I know, 
for instance, Catholic churches near here, they were before they were they had to do anything. They were they had all kinds of you know social distancing rules in place and mask wearing in place. I mean, people are careful because most people are conscientious, even if they don't believe it works. They do it to make their neighbors feel better. This was just sort of an attack on red states, which still, incidentally, in most cases, do just as well as any other states. Florida is just as good as California, better than New York. Um, you know, so they keep changing their arguments. Yeah, I, I don't see them doing anything else. I do worry, as you mentioned, and people sort of uh, like to snicker at this because it sounds overly idealistic. But uh, there is no coronavirus exception in the Constitution. And uh, you have no right to tell people how to act on a personal level in the way government has been doing. I don't care that there's an emergency or not. And I just don't see governors giving, what is the, I have to ask you, I mean, what, no one has answered this question for me. What is the use of the Constitution if every time there's an emergency, you get to just ignore everything that's in it? No one needs it when we're just doing what we're supposed to. No one needs free speech when you're saying things everyone likes, right? No one needs protection of religious freedom when no one's bothering you. This is when we need it, and this is when it's being ignored by Michigan, by New York, by California, et cetera. I, co I couldn't agree more. I keep saying the Constitution is not a suggestion box. You know, this isn't like I just went for a meal at Chili's and I want to tell them that they should get me my, my chicken tenders faster, right? The, the Constitution is supposed to withstand these moments of, of crisis. And I, I think we'd have to all look at this and say it really hasn't. And, you know, yesterday uh, when I when I was on on uh, outnumbered on Fox, I brought up because we're, we're doing this whole look, China is a major threat. I've been saying that for the four years we've been focused on Russia, that China is a much bigger problem long term for a, a host of reasons. Russia is a manageable issue. It's a problem, but it's a manageable issue. China may not be manageable over the long term. So we got big issues there. But we're talking about Chinese censorship. And I kind of had this moment and I said it on air. I said, well, yeah, I mean, granted, they're not going to throw you in prison for saying the wrong thing on Twitter. But we've absolutely moved in this direction. Now. I mean, there is state sanctioned, allowable speech about major policy and political issues that you will be shut down for saying the wrong things about. It's true about elections. It's true about covid. I mean, what could be more important than allowing a free and open debate about these lockdowns? Our major institutions, there's free speech as a legal principle, but there's also free speech as a concept. And our major institutions that are supposed to be defending free speech, the news media, social media platforms, they've abandoned ship. Or actually, it's worse than that. I shouldn't even that, strike that from the record. They're part of the pirate ship that's taking over the ship of free speech. They're actually the offenders. Yeah, I couldn't agree with everything you said more. The, the the free speech is a legal concept. We have the First Amendment, but it's also a liberal concept that we're supposed to believe in in our everyday lives. But we have the we have most of the major media, and we've talked about this many times, pushing back against not pushing back against it, participating in the suppression of speech that they don't like because for whatever reasons, which is just an illiberal outlook on the world. Now, if you read a, one of my favorite history books, is Modern Times by Paul Johnson, sort of just a, a history of the 20th century. Um, and every single time you, and I'm not saying with Nazi Germany or anything like that, but every single time you see people taking power they shouldn't have, it's on the heels of some emergency or imagined emergency or overstated scaremongering, et cetera, it, every single time. And that's what happens here. This is how you corrode individual liberty. Now, I don't know that people are that idealistic about it anymore, frankly, unfortunately, because I see polls and most people are fine with these things, it seems to me, and maybe I'm wrong. Um, and that to me is even a, a more dangerous and scary uh, sort of 
portent of, of future events. I don't mean to be a bummer as we're, and we're speaking to David Harsanyi. He's a senior writer at nationalreview.com. Check out his latest there. Uh, and and <laughs> whenever I start with, I don't want to be a bummer, it usually means I'm about to be a bummer. Uh, but I, I also think that the full economic and just societal devastation from the lockdowns. Now, granted, the body count is very high from COVID. It's, it's terrible. But the the uh, way this has been presented to us all along was, well, that will be much less if we do all these other things. And now we're seeing the other things. I mean, David, over 80,000 people, it's looking like over 85,000, I think, as of right now, died of drug overdoses in 2020. Highest that it has ever been by a, by a lot. Um, and, and that's not even including missed cancer screenings and all these very real ramifications. I think that this is going to be a little bit like, you know, when you... Sometimes if you have a bad, you know, if you, you got like a, a bayonet wound, you don't know how bad it is until the bayonet comes out. I think until the lockdowns you know, really end and then people realize, well, what happens to all the delinquent mortgages and what happens to what, what happened to all these businesses that haven't made any money in nine months? I mean, I think then people realize, did we, what did we get for this? That's that's also a great way to get you know, a great point. I mean, the negative externalities of the lockdowns are going to be immense for the economy, for our our our, our, our lives, for kids' lives. Or, you know, in third grade, I think is the grade where you like see if the kids the kids need helps, and if you help in, in in reading or whatever, and if you don't intervene, it gets worse and worse and things like that. I mean, how many children are going to suffer because of this? How many how many depressed people have killed themselves, etc. Drug overdoses. It's just terrible, and we're supposed to weigh these things now let me ask i mean do you does anyone really believe that if we had not locked down things would have been that much worse on the COVID front as far as the deaths go i, I don't know i, I keep um, you know i, I show this see. and the president retweeted this graph so that got you know that got me a lot or uh, this comment and it's gotten me a lot of unwanted attention online david as you know that can happen I, i'm sorry it's not possible to be a reasonable person and look at what's happening in California right now, an entirely blue state. There's no there's no Trump, no masking, you know, lobby in California doesn't exist. An entirely blue state that was saying that they had crushed the virus before. It is not possible to look at their not just their cases, but their hospitalizations and their overall covid problem and say, yeah, they they had this figured out. They, they It would have been much worse if they hadn't done all these things. I don't think a reasonable person could say that. And they're saying it all the time. Yeah, I don't. I mean, I, I listen. I don't pretend to have some great expertise in this, but it just looking at the world, looking at Sweden and other places. I'm not saying it couldn't have been marginally worse, but but I think weighing what the, what the what the the cost of this will be for society in the long run, like you said, we can't keep passing bills and giving people $600 checks. It's, first of all, it's not going to help them. Secondly, in the long run. Secondly, start thinking about what mortgages and rents and all these things we've sort of suspended. This is real property. People have given loans. This money just doesn't disappear simply because people don't pay it back or the, or the loans don't and and rent as well people own those buildings they're going to get need to be paid there's already a backup and that sort of uh cascades into other problems and as we saw in 2007 and 8 and things like that when you have the real estate market so i'm just I'm, i don't predict anything terrible i don't know how these things are going to play out but it's hard for me to believe that there won't be real cost to this societally as we move forward and then when you ask yourself we, we just blindly followed, you know, Dr. Fauci or whoever else. And I'm not trying to just blame him. This is a, you know, the whole expert class was saying these things. Um, was it worth it? And uh, I, I suspect that it probably was not worth it because we still have 
many, many deaths. I think that it would have been far better to protect the, and to be honest, we didn't exactly know how this, you know, in the beginning, what, what was going on, but to protect populations that needed it and allow other people to move forward with their lives. And we didn't do that. And now there's going to be, a, and, but here's a one last thing. The thing was they never switched it up, right? Once we knew that it was the older folks who, who were the most potentially going to die from this, they never switched up their ideas. It was always the same. It was always lock it down. Don't let people go to school. Don't work. Let the teachers, your unions run the schools, et cetera. And that I think is where, not at the beginning, but later on where there's a, the real, you know, problem lay for us and where the real uh, mismanagement of our society lay. David Harsani, everybody, NashReview.com for his latest. David, always appreciate you, my friend. Happy New Year to you, and we'll talk to you as soon as we come back. Thank you. You too. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Maybe four, but at least three. We offered another half trillion dollars in relief to only to be blocked by Democrats here in the Senate. Speaker Pelosi was candid. She basically said, well, this is about politics. This is, we don't want President Trump to get credit for Congress stepping up in a bipartisan way to provide relief to the American people in the run-up to the election. That's what you have to know about this giant bill and what happened and what led up to this point. There's There's really nothing else that you have to know. There's really nothing else about this in terms of the process. There's a lot about the bill itself, but I mean, in terms of why was it so delayed? Democrats delayed it. That's why we waited months for this. And why did they do that? Because the misery of the American people was to their political benefit. Senator John Cornyn there is absolutely correct. I I want you to remember that, not just because it feels like there might be some accountability if if enough Americans going into the ballot box in, in not just two years, but in a couple of weeks, this Georgia Senate runoff is essential. Okay. So let's not forget that this when we talk about the political battles ahead, I'm not saying, oh, in a far off land in a time, you know, long since forgotten. We're going to we're talking about as soon as we come back from the Christmas uh, season and Christmas break, we're going to be in this Georgia runoff. So I want as many and we have a lot of team Buck in Georgia, a lot of people that listen to this show down in Georgia. And I want people to remember that the Democrat Party made people suffer because it was in their interest politically to do so. And people's anxiety, their businesses made it worse for everyone. That is Pelosi's legacy in the 2020 year of COVID. Trying to play games, holding the American people hostage, denying them money they deserve and are owed because she says so. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Unless you stop the virus everywhere, you don't stop the virus anywhere. What's frustrating to me is we've learned these lessons. We went through this in the spring. We saw how COVID came and the federal government had no idea. You know, everything was retrospective. COVID was coming to New York back in February. It came February, March, April, and the federal government didn't even know it. They thought it was still in China. Uh, They didn't figure it out until much later. Let's at least learn. And when you have all the EU countries banning uh, UK, you have the UK itself closing down. 
uh, what other signal do you need? Uh, New York has one of the lowest infection rates in the United States. We're the fourth lowest state in the nation. But I can't protect New Yorkers unless we protect the entire country. Governor Cuomo can't protect anyone. That, that's what we've actually learned. There, there's, he's not protecting people. This is not true. The things that he has done, the decisions that he has made that people have opposed at different phases of this have been wrong. And the biggest one, of course, was sending COVID positive seniors back into nursing homes from the hospital. And that had disastrous results. This, this notion, though, this slogan that he that he uh, trots out here about how unless you stop COVID everywhere, you don't stop COVID anywhere. Uh, yeah, that's that, that's true in a sense. And that's why we don't we're not stopping COVID. What, what world is he living in? It is not stopping in America. That has not happened. No one has stopped this thing. Some have dealt with the spread better than others. But anyone who tells you that we crushed the virus or we flattened the curve, or, those are all delusional statements. But they're invested. They, they can't admit now that what they've been saying didn't really matter. What they've done, that the, the additional pain they've piled on top of this pandemic was unnecessary. Do, do you think you're ever going to have politicians who will tell you that? They'll never admit that. How would how would you ever want them in charge of anything ever again if they had to go around and tell people, you know what? We destroyed entire industries. We put millions, tens of millions of people out of work and we didn't need to do it. It was a decision that we made because we were cowards. We were ignorant and we were fearful and exploitative because they've used this. Look, let's remember for Democrats, the single most important political uh, goal of 2020, the single most important one was that they wanted to defeat Donald Trump. So they look at everything they did this year, and, and you have to keep this in mind. They look at all the decisions that were made, all the shutdowns and lockdowns and everything else. And no matter how painful it is, no matter what the analysis shows about this after the fact in time, they will be happy with the outcome of the lockdowns because the lockdowns created the environment for elevating Joe Biden. The lockdowns, for anyone who doubts me or disagrees with me, the lockdowns were the basis for the mail-in balloting changes that were the absolute, the, the, the sine qua non, the absolute necessity for the Democrats here was to get that change so that they could open the doors to the fraud and the irregularities that we saw in the election. That was the COVID lockdowns were part of the excuse. So they, they leveraged COVID policy as a weapon against Trump, and it was effective for them. We know that it was effective. They go on air and they blame the president for hundreds of thousands of dead people in this country as though every other country in Western Europe, in South America. I mean, do, do we really believe that some of the small island Asian nations, for example, or smaller island Asian nations or a country like Australia, we think that they're so much better at dealing with this virus or that it's if you're a country that can cut off all contact with the outside world and you have a small enough population that you can monitor it very, very closely, you'll forestall this for a while. Although Japan is now actually starting to have uh, cases growing in larger numbers, too. 
Is that likely or is it more likely that some populations, especially in Asia, have already been exposed to enough COVID viruses because of their proximity to China, which is where the flu strains come out of China year in and year out. That's what ends up happening. It has to do with the massive, uh, massive livestock populations and the proximity to human beings and the zoonotic transmission that occurs out of Asia. And then that's how you get seasonal flu year in and year out. Right. Avian flu, swine flu originate and originate in Asia, usually in China. And then they make their way around the rest of the world. Now, I know the coronaviruses are different than influenza viruses. I always think it's noteworthy, too, that we call it influenza in reference to what the Italians called it around the Renaissance period because they thought it was the influence of the stars on people that was causing them to be sick. So even our name for it shows a a real ignorance, a, a lack of understanding of the intricacies and the realities of a disease like the flu. We know some stuff about it, but there's a lot we still don't know. Uh, And with COVID, that's certainly still the case. But do we think that some of these countries in Asia, for example, are really similar to us in the way that the virus uh, could be tackled in the way that their populations have dealt with it? Or is it a better approximation for uh, approximation for us uh, to have European countries to be compared with us? They have, you know, more we're we're geographically more similar um, and. When you look at that, there's no way you you can make an argument that Donald Trump is the reason for all of this death. It's, It's simply absurd. It's obscene. But they continue to do it. They continue to say things that no honest person could believe. But they like this because it allows them to justify everything that they've done. And that's why it's going to be so hard to get them to think differently at all about any of this they they they're going to continue this narrative is what i'm telling you that it's all trump's fault because eventually we're going to look back at these lockdowns we're going to look back at what has been done here and realize that this was disaster thanks for listening to the bus sex and show podcast remember to subscribe on apple podcast the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts i believe intuitively it's already here i believe that Because if it's been flying around the world, it will be here. And I say that intuitively because I have an educated intuition because I lived this and you lived this. Also, I am not a total moron all the time. And so I am aware of the fact that by the time it is on the front page of major newspapers, Uh, A virus that is spread very, very rapidly is probably already here. Yeah, you don't say. What a a shock. Thanks, Cuomo, you buffoon. This is why this talk about about shutting down flights, I'm seeing people saying this. We we wanted to shut down flights from China because we thought that we didn't realize where the virus had already spread to. We also knew that there was a tremendous hot zone in China, and we needed more time to figure out what we were going to do. But we've had a lot of time to figure out what we're going to do now. And this virus has been in in free circulation. There's there's no reason to believe that this is limited to the UK. The more more um, transmissible strain of this, they say it's 70 percent more infectious and they think maybe it's more infectious among children. But again, OK, even if it is more infectious among children, it is at, you know, I, I don't like to say no risk because then people come at you and they'll say, well, look, 
two out of 10 million kids that got this have died from COVID, which is about what the number is. Your, your, your chances, if you're, if you're under 18 of dying from COVID-19, if you have a normal immune system, are like one in a million. I mean, they're actually, I don't mean that, I don't mean one in a million as, as a, an exaggeration. I think it is about one in a million. It's infinitesimal. But if I say no risk, they'll say, oh, but people died. You're lying, right? So it's very, very, very look, entirely acceptable risk. And that's really the phrase here I want to hone in on. Entirely acceptable risk. We have demagogues and authoritarians and a cowardly media that are all working together right now to eliminate the possibility of you being in charge of determining what is acceptable risk when it comes to viruses and health for you and your family. They're making all these decisions for you because when we push back, they say, oh, but there's risk for other people, so it's not risk for you. It's about spreading the virus. And to this, I want to say, yeah, but there's also my freedom, my liberty, and the Constitution at stake here, and there's always been risk to other people from human interaction of aerosolized viruses. I'm also going to say this now, and I want you to remember that I said it. Asymptomatic transmission has been exaggerated. I'm not saying it doesn't exist. I'm not saying it's not a concern. It has been exaggerated. Why? I know it's been exaggerated because if they had stronger numbers, we would see it all the time. But what they do is they have these largely anecdotal studies to push asymptomatic transmission because then it couldn't you can't be relied on to avoid other people if you could feel totally healthy but still spread this virus think about that we're all hiding we have all these problems because of a virus that we've been told almost 50 percent of the time 40 percent asymptomatic spread was what they were saying in the beginning of the summer we were told spreads where people don't even know they have a virus that is the that is for most people the, the degree of lethality and danger that this virus is for them they don't even know they have it i mean if you have a bad case of strep throat you're going to be in misery for a few days until your antibiotics kick in you get this you don't even know you have it is what they tell us now i think that asymptomatic transmission asymptomatic cases i'm sure is very widespread asymptomatic transmission doesn't make sense let me ask you this now, sorry, let me let me go back for a second. It's not that it doesn't exist, asymptomatic transmission. It's that as a widespread problem and cause of this disease, that doesn't add up. Why would this disease spread so easily among asymptomatic people, but other viruses out there, whether seasonal influenza, you know, different viruses, does not spread so easily among asymptomatic people? It may be pre-symptomatic people, and that's a different thing. Do you shed a lot of virus right before you show symptoms? Yes, that is true of other things. So it may be true of this one as well. But what we are told to believe is that this is an, this is an outlier in that you could be three days into an infection, feel totally fine, go for runs outside, go lift some weights, feel totally fine, and people are around you and you're just shooting virus at them all the time that can infect them. That's, that's unique. We know this. That's unique compared to other diseases. And where is the really hard evidence of that? Where is the hard evidence of it? Well, they won't provide you with hard evidence because they lack hard evidence. That's the truth. They have a lot of anecdotal data and do this or else. And remember, much of what they've done here is also premised on we can't wait to see real data 
So we're going to tell you do this based on the data because we can't wait. And if we see how it actually would work in reality, we'll already have suffered too many casualties. That's what they that's the way they force us to do all these things. You know, they, they kind of put a gun to all of our heads simultaneously and say, obey us, because by the time you figure out we're not correct with our covid uh, policies, it'll be too late. I'm sorry that did you think we're not correct and we are correct. It'll be too late. That's their their premise. This whole thing has gotten so out of control. And, and I've been saying this for a long time. You know, I was here. We are lockdown 2.0 big second wave. Why isn't New York City being hit more by this? I, th- I think it's important for us to think this one through. Why is it New York City being hit harder? We have super high population density. We have uh, a lot of people, essential workers and others who are still I'm going into an office every day. I've had friends recently who have come down with COVID. So it's very much out there. But New York City has about half the positivity rate based on testing. And I know there's a lot of ways testing skews this debate because how much testing are you doing? How m- The people that say, oh, testing doesn't create cases are being intentionally obtuse. They're being morons, right? Because the point isn't that you create. It's if you test a lot of people and there's a high there's a, there's a high false positive rate. And on top of that, you're catching more of the COVID that's already out there compared to previous testing when you were doing less and therefore you weren't seeing as much COVID. There are real reasons why the numbers are skewed. That's obvious to anyone who thinks through this. I would just note, I, I would return to why does New York City have a lower positivity rate than the rest of New York State? And I think the answer is, uh, well, I shouldn't say the answer is. An explanation for it is, in the serology testing that we did back in May or June, we saw that about 20% of New York City had been infected. That was the official number based on the extrapolation of a large number of blood tests looking for antibodies. 20% of the whole city. Since then, we've obviously had a far, we've had far more cases, and we also did not catch, I mean, the 20% was probably a low figure. It might have even been 18 or 19% officially, but it was a low figure. And you've got to add at least another 5 or 10% on top of that for what's happened since then. So you're getting close to a third of the city would already have had COVID and had antibodies. So while we're going around masking and distancing and doing this whole dance we've been doing the whole time, and in New York City, where, once, where, where California was over the summer because everyone's patting themselves in the back, look what a great job we're doing. Well, are we doing a great job or do we just have a large percentage of the population that is effectively no longer at risk to this disease? And did we already lose so many of the highest risk individuals in the nursing homes that, yes, right now we're going to look like we're better off? You see what Cuomo has done? Cuomo is like a general who loses all of his soldiers in the first engagement of a war. And then three months later at, at the you know, command staff headquarters is saying, well, I have the lowest casualties this month. Well, yeah, it's because you lost everybody in the first engagement. You lost everyone in the first battle. And there's some tr- uh, there's some truth to that as a way of understanding what's happening in New York. And as I'm sure it's true in other places as well, that really what Cuomo has has overseen here is a disastrous first response with casualties and spread of the virus so high that now in the second wave, New York City still has problems. People are not all immune to this. I get that. But in the second wave of this, what you have are people, a large number of people who can't get it, which slows the transmission dramatically. And of course, they're going to say it's masks and social distancing. But whose theory makes more sense, mine or theirs? Whose theory makes more sense? Look at California. 
Look at Florida and New York. Whose theories make more sense? What, who, who is actually supported by the data and who's part of this, you know, cult of the magical mask? It's what a Dr. Fauci, your mask is magic. I didn't think it was at the beginning of the year, but so much science has changed since then. Yeah, what science has changed? Oh, the bureaucrats got a little taste of power. That's what changed. Are you worried about the stock market this year, next year? What's going to happen? What about the value of the dollar? What about inflation? Can you see the future? I don't think anybody can. But you can prepare for an uncertain economic outlook and for all the debt this country's piling up by diversifying with real gold and silver. I get real gold and silver from the Oxford Gold Group. I trust them. I know they've got the best prices, the best customer service, and they'll help you just like they help me get exactly what I need. If you haven't purchased gold or silver yet, now is the time. If you've purchased gold in the past, remind yourself why. Because the Oxford Gold Group will get it done for you. All my listeners should call the Oxford Gold Group right now at 833-600-GOLD and get the free precious metals investment guide. The Oxford Gold Group is who I trust. It's who I recommend. Let Oxford Gold explain the options of having real gold or silver delivered to your home like I have or how you can have real gold or silver in your IRA or 401k. Call the Oxford Gold Group right now at 833-600-GOLD. That's 833-600-G-O-L-D. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Carol Markwitz on from the New York Post. Uh, New York's restaurant killing rules make no sense, and it keeps getting worse. Carol, great to have you back on the show. Hi, how's it going? <laughs> Good. So, so the, res- the restaurant rules are crazy. Just, just go over what are some of the most absurd ones for everyone to know. While, while, while the cases are rising and everyone's all in this panic, right. the, the authorities mm-hmm. are taking the time to tell you things that are it's, the absurdity just keeps mounting. Yeah. Well, I just want to also make it clear that the cases, while they are rising, they're the second lowest in the state in New York City. And so and New York City is the only area of the state that has restaurant indoor dining closed. So it's kind of interesting that this place with the second lowest numbers, the second lowest hospitalizations, is the only place targeted for closure. Um, So right off the bat, that's pretty ridiculous to me. Um, They tried to stop people from being able to use the bathrooms when they're in the outdoor dining they're saying that people can't go into the restaurant to use the bathroom and the restaurants pushed back on that hard because it was obviously completely absurd and they reversed themselves on that um on on the same day in the same uh, diktat they also put out that you had to order if you were getting takeout from a restaurant you had to order it by phone or on the internet um, and so a lot of these small businesses, like, for example, the coffee shop on my corner, it's uh, one person behind the counter and or maybe two, you know, one person making the coffee during the busy times and one person taking the money. There's not a third person to go out to the street uh, and sorry, because you also had to pick it up curbside. That was the, other, the second part of that. There's not a third person to go out in the street and pick it up curbside. There's not a third person to take orders on the phone or, or via the Internet. I, you could only have so many people in the space. So. Yeah, there's all these insane things. They keep changing the rules on these restaurant owners. I, I spoke to so many restaurant owners. There's just so much that they, all these kinds of just rules being thrown at them all the time, changed all the time, and it, it's a really bad situation. At what point are, are people yeah. going to realize who aren't in the restaurant industry that if this continues, there, there's no way 
And as you point out, I think that's important. On, on the one hand, Cuomo mm-hmm. is telling us at the state level, New York's actually doing pretty well as a state, given what's going on in much of the rest of the country when it comes to COVID. New York City mm-hmm. specifically is it's doing great. Yeah. Is, is doing well. And and so they've they've shut indoor dining almost, it seems like, as a, as a preventative measure, even though they only said one point seven percent of cases come from New York City. Right. But that preventative mm-hmm. measure, I mean, the mentality behind this means, as far as I can see, and I've been saying there's going to be another lockdown, which we're in now for six months. Yeah, uh, that this will continue until at least April or May. And what do they right. think is going to be left? Yeah. Right, exactly. Every time that any of these people who support restaurant closures like talk about their favorite restaurant closing, I just I have to bite my tongue because I could just lose it on them. Like, what do you think is closing these restaurants if not the fact that they can't exist? And the other thing is, I went out to a restaurant um, last week and it was 35 degrees outside and we sat outside. And there was a heat lamp. And the first hour, you're kind of like, okay, you have a drink, you take off your coat, you're under a heat lamp, you're doing okay. The second hour, I could not feel my toes. And it was just, I don't know how often I can do that. I don't know how often anybody can do that. But the thing is, the thing that I really thought as I was sitting there in this restaurant that most of the tables were were full outside – is that if these people didn't have this outdoor space to go to, if they didn't have a restaurant to go to, they would be somewhere else. They'd be inside, inside their homes. It's not like people are not going to gather. That's it. They're gathering. This lockdown thing is over. Nobody's following it anymore. It's, it's over. And our politicians just have to face it. It's done. Speaking to Carol Markowitz, opinion uh, columnist at the New York Post. She's got a piece up on New York's restaurant killing rules um and and i just would wonder you know how how we are how are we doing right now with with schools i mean i know that we'd be in a break anyway yeah. but tell, give me an update on the status of the school um, system well you know it was it was a really splashy story when schools reopened in november because actually in, in december sorry early december um because Bill de Blasio said, okay, now we're going to reopen schools after closing them for really no reason at all, um, and we're going to move to a full-time model. And I almost fell down on the floor. We're moving to a full-time school model? Wow, that's amazing. And it was so unbelievable because it's totally not happening. <laughs> um, no, Very few schools are opening full-time. Uh, they, the insanity and ineptitude behind all these decisions um, when de Blasio made that announcement, he got his headlines, but almost no school that I know of uh, is going full-time because they just don't have the space to keep social distancing and, um, and, and do full-time. And my concern, honestly, is already not even for this year. I, I sort of think this year is done and schools are not going to improve and they're not going to open for any longer length of time than they are right now. My concern is September. My concern is September and still the kids won't have a vaccine there's not even trials yet for kids under 12. So what's going to happen? If they still have to social distance, that means that elementary school kids are still going to be going to school at most two or three days a week. And it's it's really just not a path forward. This is, I mean, it's, it's stunning and, and it's honestly pretty saddening just to even think about this. But I think it's important. I think everyone needs to know that. This is why I keep saying... Uh, you know, the closing restaurants now, they tell you it's for a couple. There's no way it's only for a couple of weeks They're because once right. once they've got the closure, they don't want to be the ones, you know, it, it's much, much more uh, politically dangerous in their minds. Forget about any health danger, politically dangerous to reopen in the middle of winter. And yeah. then there's a spike and then it's on you. So once they get closures, once they get these rules in place, the overwhelming momentum is going to be 
you know, everything that they're doing to us right now and everything they say they may still do to us, they're going to carry that all the way through the winter. And, so, uh, you know, and, and as I said, really April or May yeah. is when we'll start to be told, oh, maybe you can have some normalcy back, even with the vaccine out there. Because remember, the vaccine is going to take time. Everyone knows that. But also, yeah. they have created a near zero risk tolerance in the public perception right. for what right. we can do. And, and the vaccine yeah, exactly. doesn't bring the risk to zero. And, you know, the other thing I've been just talking about a lot lately is that our pathetic New York City politicians are not standing up to Cuomo. Again, our restaurants are the only restaurants closed. And in a lot of cases, our schools are the only schools closed. In most of the suburban areas, schools are open full time. It is all on, under, you know, on, on Cuomo's watch. And none of our pathetic, useless, seat-warming politicians who will not stand up for our city are saying a word about it. You know, the, you have these councilmen going to these protests for restaurants, but they're not protesting to open the restaurants. No, they're they're protesting to get a federal, you know, bailout for the restaurants. Or uh, another councilman in Brooklyn is um, really into getting insurance companies to pay for these restaurants. They're basically like someone else has to pay. And that's where they are. They're not saying, let's open these restaurants. They're saying, someone should give these people money. We should have a rent freeze. That's the other great idea. We should have a rent freeze and just pass the, the, the pain along to landlords because, just, you know, we just have a, a, we could have a protest for them in three months. What do you think they're going to do about evictions? I, I'm, I'm unsure what they can do about it. Right now, commercial evictions can still go on. I think they're trying to pressure uh, Governor Cuomo to stop that, which is, you know, it, it's such a tough spot because obviously if the landlord's not getting paid, they could figure it out with, with themselves with the restaurant. Um, they can, the restaurant can maybe have a payment plan or they could negotiate the rent down because it's not like somebody else is coming into the space right now. We're speaking to Carol Markowitz, got a great column in the New York Post on what's happening to the restaurant and, and hospitality industry in New York City because of these, uh, honestly, just in some cases, absurd and, and frivolous uh, rules and regulations that are being instituted. Yeah. It's just It's just nonsense. Um, but but Carol, are you are you beginning to hear a little more um, from, from you're a Brooklynite? I'm a Manhattanite. Are, are you hearing more mm-hmm. from from Democrats or, or seeing any willingness on their side to say, because for a while, as long as this was about Trump, it didn't matter. It, it didn't yeah. matter how much we suffered or anything else. It was mm-hmm. you can't give in to this. The anti lockdown thing and Trump were intertwined. Now I look around the right. city. I'm like, have you guys had enough yet? This really isn't about Trump. Do you see any change in mentality or they really think in St. Fauci we trust? (laughs) The only thing I've seen a shift on is schools because the New York Times, the Atlantic, they all sort of made it okay to shift their position on schools. But they still don't care about the science of whether people are catching this at restaurants, which, again, they're not. Um, And I I don't know what it will take. I really don't. I, I call these people the pajama class because they're sitting at home in their pajamas getting paid on their laptops, like, and they don't care what's going on around them. And, um, it's really bad that they are unable to see their neighbor's pain and the way that, their livelihoods are being destroyed for no reason. I, I'd be first to say let's close restaurants if there was evidence that restaurants were contributing to like a high spread, but there just isn't. And again, anybody going to a restaurant is probably hanging out with the same people at home anyway. So shutting down indoor dining is just moving it indoors to other locations. Carol Markowitz. Carol in the New York Post. Great writing. Thanks so much for Thank joining you. us. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. We mentioned uh, de Blasio before. What is he really focused on? What is de Blasio focusing in on? 
right now? Where does where does he think his energy and his time should be spent? Uh, I like to say very bluntly, our mission is to redistribute wealth. A lot of people bristle at that phrase. That is, in fact, the phrase we need to use. We have been doing this work for seven years to more equitably redistribute resources throughout our school system. This this guy, this buffoon is giving Marxism lectures while the city of New York is is in desperate straits. That's really what he's doing. Redistribute the wealth. This guy thinks he is on a mission from on high, although I don't know what higher power he believes in one way or the other, but he, this is a guy who thinks that his purpose in life isn't to make New York the crown jewel of, of American cities and, and the greatest city in the world, which I think it has been for a long time. I mean, I, I love this place. Don't get me wrong. I keep coming back. I've moved twice to D.C. and I said, I've had enough. I want to go back to New York. I love New York City. My family's here. This place is is a part of me. It's been a huge part of my life. And I've never felt before. I mean, yeah, after 9-11, we got hit badly, but we rallied. And we knew once we got almost a year past 9-11. And if you look at where we are now, you know, almost a year past the pandemic to where we would have been a year past 9-11, you know, we rallied. And, yeah, it was a terrible loss. and, And we had to come together and support, you know, NYPD and FDNY after the losses that they suffered and friends and members and family members of our community. But we knew we rallied. We knew we were coming back, too, as a city and as a country. And there was that mentality of they're not they're not going to shut us down. They're not going to stop us from being who we are with this with this with this pandemic as it plays out here. I, I look around and I say there are a lot of people who don't really see the restrictions and the destruction of the economy and of of social and and cultural life. And they don't see that as an urgent problem. They, They like the control and they like the belief that they're saving lives by being the busybodies that are up in your face telling you wear a mask. They think that that's really the great contribution that they're making to this. All you have to do is wear a mask. You're a good person. You're not one of those bad people. And look, I wear a mask because I have to. And I'm very, I I wear fresh masks, I wash my masks, I'm very judicious about it because I have to be, because you have no choice here. So don't don't think that I'm walking around. I went through a period over the summer where it was just absurd, and there's so few cases in New York City. Yeah, and and then everyone's complaining. I I was the unmasked guy walking around my building. What, what, What? I wasn't sitting in rooms with people for a long period of time, but just walking past them for 10 seconds, you know, that... And now here we are. And de Blasio, to bring this all full circle, de Blasio is out there talking about Marxism. He views the destruction of New York City as we know it as an opportunity. You have to remember that. We have the enormous vacancy issue in all, in all these hotels. I mean, who, who wants to stay in a New York City hotel right now? You, you want to go stay in one of those big hotels near Times Square? I, I, you know, I don't think a lot of people are excited about that. And and never mind all the commercial real estate that is not getting use right now. And they're saying they want to switch it to residential in some cases. They're looking at changing the zoning to do that. You know what de Blasio is going to want to do. He's going to want to create. He's going to want to take. He's going to jack taxes up on people who are, you know, earners. And he's going to try to take take as much money as he can to subsidize other people's housing and I think his real plan, Donald, if he can, if he's got time to do it before he has to leave office, will be to set up uh, as much 
subsidize housing in some of these office spaces as he can, whether it's middle income housing or however the New York, the NYCHA is going to do it. But they'll set up something. They'll set up some subsidized housing. I mean, de Blasio really thinks that a poorer, more dangerous New York City is an opportunity to, yes, you guessed it, redistribute the wealth as if that's going to make this place better, as if that's going to improve things. Like, that's why people show up in New York, to have some idiot Marxist in charge telling them what they can and can't do. I, I have to have to tell you, there's a school on the, on the Upper East Side, and it, and it was, I knew this school a little bit when I was growing up. I, I knew people went there. I went to Regis, which was also in the Upper East Side. Regis was the Catholic scholarship school on 85th Street. This school was just a few blocks away on 89th Street, the Dalton School. I've got to tell you, this is a little break from all the COVID talk. I've got to tell you about the list of, they're saying it was a starting point for negotiations, but it's really a list of demands for faculty members there of the school and what it has to do. This, the, the, the same kind of wokeness and social justice focus that, that guides the minds of someone like a Bill de Blasio on display at a school that's a 50, I think it's $54,000 a year tuition for the first grade. We're not even talking about, I mean, there's a high school too, but you got, you got eight-year-olds, nine-year-olds. Parents are writing over $50,000 checks so they can learn their ABCs. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. One is for the parents out there uh, and for, well, for anyone, for the kids that are listening, probably too. Um, that, and my mom tells a story around the family dinner table when we celebrate my, my birthday every year that I am now a, a syndicated radio host uh, on over 180 stations. And I've filled in for the biggest radio shows in the country with, with success in terms of the listenership and, and the response to Rush Limbaugh, to Sean Hannity, to Glenn Beck. Uh, the, the three biggest and, and best shows on the radio uh, right now from the syndication perspective. So I, I've done all that, and I think it's worth noting for everybody that I am somebody who started out with a whole lot of trouble talking. I was a kid who had a, a speech impediment. I always forget the exact, uh, but it's essentially a, a, a pronunciation defect. There is a more official speech therapist term for it, but I was somebody who just heard words one way and, and mispronounced them. And, and this was really embarrassing as a kid. I actually mispronounced, believe it or not, I mispronounced my own name. Um, and yes, I would, I would tell people my name was, I would tell people when I was a little kid, you know, seven, six, seven years old, my name was Butt. And you can imagine that that did not go over well with my peers. And I was very aware and I, I also, I had to have uh, speech therapy lessons as a kid. And so this is about the second or third grade speech therapy lessons. And I also had to have additional outside tutoring because I was falling behind, probably because I, I lacked confidence in, uh, I lacked confidence in all the different areas of academics at that, you know, writing and trying to begin reading and things like that. And my mom, who is a superstar champion mom of the universe, never gave up on me and my dad encouraged me and they stuck through it with me. And by the time I got to the fifth grade, I was the top student by far in my class. 
By the time I got to the eighth grade, I got a full scholarship to a private high school in New York. It was a $100,000 scholarship. Uh, so stick by your kids and those of you listening to this. If you got any trouble in school, or if you have a speech impediment, you have a stutter, stay on it, stay brave, stay proud, keep your shield high. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. I was a kid making fun of Dalton kids because, you know, all that school rivalry stuff. We were in the same neighborhood. I never thought I'd be on radio later on talking about how crazy the Dalton school's gotten. But this is indicative of the whole woke mindset. This is just it's an example. I want to be clear about this, but it's one that this could be any corporation. Any company these days has has training like this city employees in different places. As seen by some of the work that uh, Mr. Christopher Rufo of, um, I think he's with uh, the Manhattan Institute. Uh, but uh, the work that he's done to show that people get this anti-racism training as part of being a municipal employee in places like Seattle. You get a- anti-racism isn't the absence of racism, you see. They're escalating. The, the rhetoric changes for a purpose. This is not just because people are bored in the social justice circles they're actually doing this for a reason so they create this demand of anti-racism and what that effectively is um, is that it means you have to take affirmative steps you have to take actions as prescribed to work against racism it's not enough to just not be racist you have to do and institutions have to do penance in order to uh, make up for the racism all around them, the racism they benefit from, and the racism of history. Now, do you ever think that you reach a point where you've done enough of this? Is there ever such a thing as enough anti-racism? Remember, not we shouldn't be racist. We all agree on that. Racism is bad. Racism is immoral. This is something else. This is, well, now there are demands that come from the, from the anti-racism movement that you have to meet. It doesn't matter what you've done. Like, I could sit here and say, well, hold on a second. I'm the I'm the chief financial officer of this company, and uh, I, I don't want to do this. I don't want to give in to your list of demands because I treat all my employees very well. I advance, you know, I've got African-American employees in very senior roles, and they're very happy, and I treat everybody as equals, and I'm a good person. And the anti-racism movement would say, ah, no, 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 no. That doesn't matter. You give in to the anti-racism demands because of the system around you that's even allowed you as a white male to be the CFO, don't you see? Your actions, your decency, your colorblindness in the way you treat people, none of that matters to the anti-racism movement because ultimately this is a shakedown, right? Ultimately this is do as we say or else. It's not about whether you're a good person or you're racist or not or your institution's racist or not. There's racism everywhere. And the only way that you can be absolved of the constant original sin of existing as a white American today who does not take part in the anti-racism movement is to take part in the anti-racism movement. There's no other way. There's no there's no uh, other option. And now this brings me to the Dalton School. I mean, this is kind of hilarious. This place is a bastion of ultra elitism. I mean, I'm just going to say this right now because I knew a lot of these kids growing up. And 
I also went to a college that a lot of Dalton kids like to go to, or you know, a fair number of them want to go to, and you know, aspire to go to. And I just tell you, I, there are plenty of kids that go to Harvard and go to you know Princeton and Stanford and all these schools who don't have parents paying fifty-four thousand dollars a year to send them to school. I mean, this is just nuts. It's just not worth it. I mean, if you're if you're so rich that money has very little meaning, I mean, I guess maybe, and it creates this sort of social connection. But a lot of a lot of kids who go to these kinds of these kinds of super fancy private schools, and again, I know, and many of them were friends of mine or people that I knew growing up. Uh, they they don't end up being very much. They they end up. I mean, if mom and dad have so much money that they can buy their way through life, maybe. But that's a lot of money. Right? That's that's a very high bar. Anyway, the Dalton School list of demands, and this comes after. Remember, Megan Kelly is very is very high profile removal of her children from the collegiate school which was a rival of my school st david's growing up uh so i know the collegiate school very well megan kelly formerly of fox news now you know does does her own projects she uh she pulled her child out publicly just said i'm pulling my kid out and i believe it was over although i don't know if she really got into this uh much yet i believe it was over the sort of transgender and gender identity training that was being looked at that they were trying to brainwash her son into collegiate's an all-boys school i don't know if you can even say that anymore collegiate is a school of self-identified uh male gender individuals of a cheap older student now dalton very similar place here's the stuff that they want i mean this is where you really get into the why is this getting so much attention now a parent leaked a memo and it's a list of demands. 129 faculty and staff, staff members signed this. That's most of the faculty and staff at the Dalton School. I can tell you that. All right. That, that's a big chunk of. I mean, maybe they've got 200 in faculty and staff. Maybe. I don't know. That would be a lot. I mean, 129 is going to be almost everybody. So the faculty and staff signed this thing. They attest to this. And this was given out to parents. And here are some of the demands laid out. They want 12 diversity officers. That's right. They want 12 adults paid, I'm sure, a very competitive salary for something that you think that anyone could do. Uh, 12 adults probably paid all in the six-figure range whose only job is to go around this school, which does not have, I mean, I find out how many students, only has a few with the high school, I mean, you know, probably 500 kids in the whole thing or something like that. Um, but the school is going to have 12 people then, 12 adults whose only job is to go around and, and effectively find racism and lack of race equity in the school in the way that it's, it's doing, you know, whatever it is that it's doing, whether we're talking about academics or anything else. That's a lot of diversity. I mean, I think one diversity officer is too many because why do you need diversity officers? Can't people just, you know, if the school wants to make a, 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 a play to be very diverse, the admissions committee can do that and they can have that as part of their ethos and you need someone to monitor that? Well, having a diversity officer is part of the diversity, that's part of the whole diversity apparatus, you understand. It's not just about the students. You got to also have some adults who are, Diversity officers who, of course, themselves are generally going to be from a diversity pool. They're going to be from hired from uh, disadvantaged minority groups. That's the way this works. This was a great one. Fifty percent of all 
donations to the Dalton School, which has inc- ultra wealthy, a lot of hedge funders as parents, a lot of you know very very famous. You know, there are billionaires who send their kids to Dalton, and fifty percent of all donations to the schools have to be rerouted to public city schools. Uh, so they want to take, if you give a check for a million dollars to Dalton, which people usually do so that their other kids can get into Dalton, that's the whole game. But if you give your check for a million dollars to Dalton now, the faculty and staff of that school want half of that money to go to the public school system, a force to force donation. How well do you think that's going to, and let me also tell you this, Dalton's very liberal. It's a very liberal school, very liberal parents. You're not going to find, you're not going to find a lot of, uh, Buck Sexton listeners among the Dalton parents, that's for sure. They're all they're all watching, you know, Anderson Cooper and Tapper and Maddow and reading the New York Times libs. You're going to have 90 percent plus of them are going to be libs. Dalton's a very, very left wing school in that regard. Rich, but left wing elites, but Democrats or Democrat elites. Here, so so the, the 50 percent donation thing, that was pretty amazing. And this one was interesting. This is according to the Daily Mail's write-up of this. All AP classes, advanced placement uh, placement classes, would be eliminated by 2023 if student scores weren't racially equal. So they would get rid of all AP scores unless minorities were scoring as high as their white and I assume their Asian counterparts in these classes – because it gives an unfair advantage in the college admissions process that some kids get fives and fours on APs and some kids get twos and threes. It's out of five, by the way. The Dalton School. Yeah, that's right. They want to get rid of AP class. And and it goes on and on. Oh, wait, here's more. Overhaul the entire curriculum. This is from the actual list of demands. And add required courses that explicitly center black liberation and challenges to white supremacy. Uh, reduce tuition for black students whose photographs appear in school promotional materials. Pay students of the school if a photo of the students is used in a pamphlet about the school. For black students. It's not, nothing is said about other students. Mandatory community and diversity days to be held throughout the year. Required anti-bias training to be conducted every year for all staff and parent volunteers. Mandatory minority representation in elected student leadership roles. That's right. They're going to have a quota within the student government that has to be filled of minority students. Mandatory diversity plot lines in school plays. Hiring of multiple psychologists with specialization on the psychological issues affecting ethnic minority populations. And it just goes on. Oh, and require public anti-racism statements from all employees annually. Officially, in writing, bend the knee to this lunacy. These are the requirements. You want to work at the Dalton School? You know who was the headmaster of the Dalton School? Fun fact, long time ago. Give you a sense of how much that place has changed. Bill Barr, the Attorney General of the United States, was the headmaster a long, long time ago at the Dalton School. Want another fun fact or interesting fact? Uh, you know who was, while Bill Barr was the 
headmaster, which I think you can now, it's like principal or they call it, they can't say headmaster, but they used to be headmaster of the Dalton School. You know who was one of his math teachers? One Jeffrey Epstein. We were all told to believe beyond a reasonable doubt killed himself, even though he was in a high security prison under surveillance constantly. Okay. So, yeah, Dalton has some uh, some famous faculty alumni. That's for sure. Now, I understand a lot of you. You're like, well, my kid goes to a great school out in Bergen County or my kid goes to a great school out in out in Suffolk or something. I I get that. Do you feel like does this really? And, you know, when someone's going to fifty four thousand dollar a year uh factory of elitism and pomposity which is what dalton really is that's right i'm taking some shots at it remember i I went to regis scholarship school thank you very much my dad had to send me to school the first week of school with a 20 dollar check 20 dollars to take uh for laboratory fees and some kind of a student fee that's a 20 bucks other than that private education four years it's a great place so i give regis a lot of credit it was the best $20 anybody could spend. Uh, Dalton costs fifty-four grand, so uh, that's, that's quite a bit more than 20 bucks. And I think it was an inferior education, but we could argue about that another time. Um, but when you see this happening in, in a school like that, understand that this is happening at a place where the parents were the, where you'd think there'd be, there's enough financial and educational power among the parents that they wouldn't be forced to, deal with this level of lunacy that the school would want to protect its reputation in some way and no eventually everyone eventually everyone is supposed to bend the knee to this stuff this will come to your child's school if it has not already it probably is already there you just may not be aware of it your son or your daughter is being indoctrinated in this anti-racism stuff sometimes they'll call it anti-bias training same thing this is left-wing cultural Marxism. This is left-wing identity politics taught as though it is the only way to see the world. And if you doubt it, if you challenge it, you know what they hit you with? You know what your sin is? You fail to join as an anti-racist. And what does it mean about you if you're, an, if you're not an anti-racist? What, what do you think the conclusion is that they want everyone to draw right away? Well, if you're not an anti-racist, you must be, ah, yes, a racist. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, our final roll call of 2020 went a little long in the last one, so it's gonna. This is gonna be a, a shorter roll call than uh, I usually would do. But don't worry, we got so many roll calls come to the new year. And also one thing I will do, I want to tell you this, I'll try, I'll catch up and I'll be looking through a lot of messages on Facebook, on TikTok, on Instagram. I'm not really going to be posting and I'm not going to be doing shows over the Christmas break, but I, I will be, and the show will be reachable. So send me a message. And you know, if you want a few Tallulah photos, I'll, I'll put some Tallulah photos up online. Tallulah, of course, the dog. And uh, yeah, I mean, so I'll, I'll be looking through messages. So if you send us roll calls and we'll certainly pick through and, and grab some to start us off January 4th when we're back here. Uh, and like I said, Michael Pelka is going to be taking over for me. So there's going to be a Buck Sexton show. It's just Michael Pelka guest hosting. And, and he always does uh, a great job. And, and Mike is a is an old friend of mine and, and just such a such a good dude. And I really think you should listen to him. DB writes in for roll call. Hey, Buck, I want to let you know that I'm truly appalled by our politicians and the people in power. 
It's disturbing to me that these people feel they are so important uh, that they put themselves in front of the people who they supposedly serve. When I watch AOC and her cronies that are not vital laughing and having fun while getting their shots, it disgusts me to my core. To put yourself before doctors, nurses, the sick and dying, the elderly and those who really need the shot should show all Americans who they really are and what they care about. Simply disgusting. I voice my opinion. Oh, yeah, the governor of California and Cuomo are garbage. I'm happy I live in Florida. Love the show. Peace, Scott. DB, thanks, a.k.a. Scott. Thanks so much, man. Great of you to, to write in. I appreciate it. And uh, I, you know, like, I, I agree with you on the governors, and I also think it's absurd. AOC didn't need that shot. That's, that's just, there's no justification. For that. I don't care what the government policy is. It's dumb. TJ writes, Buck, what do you think about Ted Cruz's proposal for Trump to send the Iran nuclear deal and the Paris Accords to Congress so that the Senate can officially veto them as national treaties and thereby nullify any advances that Biden may try to make on them when he gets into office? Also, what are some other powers or deals that Trump could give or send back to Congress to further limit the power of the executive branch before Biden takes office? What do you think? I I think that's a great idea. I love this. Send the treaties to the Senate to get to see have the Senate vote on them. And then that becomes the record. I think that's brilliant. I think the people on Capitol Hill who came up with this uh, deserve a giant high five. And we should absolutely do it. It would be very, 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 very helpful. Um, And friends, that's going to be it for us here, man. 2020. We were in this together. Have a great holiday season. Merry Christmas. Happy Hanukkah. Happy New Year. Shields high. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts.